Just to clarify something, if you notice to your bulletins, um, it says we're going through the first seven verses of 1 Corinthians 13. For the first time in a long time, I couldn't do it. We're going through the first three. That's especially for those of you who, as the time draws near to noon, and we're in verse 2, that you won't be freaking out. We're just going through the first three verses. Please turn there. The Corinthian church in first century Greece was being torn apart by selfish attitudes of so many of its members. And after being delivered from the darkness of the pagan religions that were so prevalent in this city, these relatively young believers were succumbing once again to those practices and ways of thinking. As a result, there was infighting and posturing and individual prestige became paramount along with position and power demonstrated most visibly in their administration of the Lord's Supper. A sad sight for all who claimed the name of Christ. Because what they were doing and how they were acting towards one another denigrated the Lord's name and his saving grace. The same kind of selfishness also showed up in the rest of their regular worship services. They were using their spiritual gifts to gain attention to themselves and make themselves feel more spiritual than their brothers and sisters in Christ, which, of course, was the very opposite of the purpose of the gifts to build up and encourage one another in Christ. Now, in the Apostle Paul's letter, which addresses all of these problems, he reminded them that while they were individuals with different spiritual gifts, they were joined together in the body of Christ. Each member, it says in verse 22 of chapter 12, was indispensable to the body as a whole. No divisiveness allowed. They should have the same care and appreciation for one another because they were each members of the same body as Christ's local body. Paul put it this way in chapter 12, verse 27. He said, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Paul also reminded them that none of the spiritual gifts were given to everyone in the church. We'll see in chapter 14 how the least important gift of all was actually thought to be for everyone and somehow a sign of their spirituality. And Paul, as we've said many times already, will set that straight, especially in chapter 14. But first he unpacks what he meant in the last verse of chapter 12 and verse 31, the last half of it. He said, and I will show you a still more excellent way. And he was referring to the mandate of learning to love. If you're able, would you please stand as I read 1 Corinthians 13 verses 1, 2, and 3 
from the English Standard Version. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Now that you've gotten comfortable with looking at 1 Corinthians 13, would you please, if you want to, turn to 1 John chapter 4. And be looking at verses 7 through 11. Dennis is smiling. It's what the men's Bible study has been going over. 1 John 4, 7 through 11. This is to get a better understanding of what Paul says here in our chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest or revealed among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. And this is love, or love consists of this, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to or must love one another. Let's ask five fundamental questions from this little passage. So as John points out, the love Paul writes about is actually how God describes himself. So the first question is, how does the word of God describe God in the simplest of terms? God is love. Second question, how did God manifest or reveal his love to us? The primary, most important way God revealed his love to us was when he sent his only son into the world, verse 9b. Third question, what was God's purpose in sending his son into the world? The big reason God sent his son was, verse 9c, so that we might live through him. The fourth question, what did God have to do for us so that we could live through him? Jesus Christ, God's son in human flesh, had to be the propitiation for our sins. Verse 10. And question 
Number five, why did God have to send his son to die and pay the penalty for our sins? That opens up the door to the gospel itself in all aspects. Because every one of us is a sinner by nature, and so each of us deserves to come under God's condemnation. No one can ever be good enough to be in God's presence and live. The wages of sin is death. Every human being has a heart that's in rebellion to God. Secondly, because of this hopeless condition, God determined to send his son, the second person of the Trinity, into the world as a man to live the life that is demanded of each of us, a holy and perfect life. This made it possible for Jesus to take our place as an acceptable atoning sacrifice, receiving God's wrath and condemnation. As he bore our sins on himself, he really did pay with his life for all the sins of those he came to save. Jesus averted the wrath that we deserved from God and he took it upon himself. That's what propitiation means. Thirdly, because of Jesus' life and work on the cross, those who believe on him are brought into a right relationship with God and can finally live in the truest sense of that word. Fourth, we know Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf was accepted by God. Why? Because he rose from the dead. Now with this fundamental understanding of what God's love really is, and how he demonstrated that love by sending his son into the world, we should relish the privilege of showing the same kind of love to one another. That's what's behind what Paul is writing. And of course, John puts it in his own way here. We can care for and love one another because we've received that kind of love from the Savior. And as we see in 1 John 4, 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to, some translations say, must love one another. It's not a choice. It actually is a choice. We'll see that in a minute with what agape means. But you get the point. It's commanded of us. So this privilege is also a must for everyone who knows Christ and wants to follow him. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. God's love for us and the love we must give to our brothers and sisters in Christ is summed up by the word that's used for love. It's agape. What agape does not mean, it does not mean some kind of sentimental love, having a pleasant feeling about something or someone. 
since we have one word, love, in English that can mean almost anything, when most people say, in our culture, I love you, what they so often mean, or too often mean, is I love me and I want you. In other words, most people think of love as being some form of warm feeling or affection or attraction, romance, or sexual desire. Now, the bottom line about this is that unless you're a believer, you really don't know what love is. Usually at the root of all this is some kind of selfishness that is really interested in fulfilling the desire to feel something or to get something we want. Agape should not be confused with philia, which is a close friendship or brotherly love. And it should be easy to remember because Philadelphia is such a great example of people who get along in close friendship and brothers. Isn't it interesting that its reputation is exactly the opposite, especially at sporting events? That's the way the world works. And it certainly should not be confused with eros, which is romantic sexual love. Eros isn't even found in the New Testament. I don't know whether you've noticed, but there is an insurance commercial airing right now that goes through the four words, Greek words for love. A little bit off on the one that counts, agape, got part of it right, says it's in action. I just watched that and just went, that's really interesting that they're using this to say something about their product or what life should be insured. What agape does mean, the best definition is actually 1 Corinthians 13. We have an ongoing definition in this chapter for however long it takes to get through it, which should be about two more weeks. That's an estimate. But you know what? After three weeks of looking at what Paul says in his three paragraphs of this chapter, um, it'll sink deeper, hopefully, than maybe it ever has. As John made clear, agape is God's holy love for sinners like us who can do nothing to earn his love and who are utterly unworthy of the love that we receive. It's sacrificial. It's self-giving love that demands something of us. Love that is more concerned with giving than receiving. It's the sacrifice of ourselves for the sake of others, even for others who may care nothing at all for us and who may even hate us and may even make that very plain. It's not a feeling, but a determined act of our will. It's the willing, joyful desire to put the welfare of others above our own. 
And as we'll see, it has no place for pride or vanity or arrogance or self-seeking or self-glory. It's a choice that we are commanded to make even on behalf of our enemies. Do you see what he's saying? We'll find out, especially in the next paragraph, the pros and the cons, the words that Paul uses. But it is a choice. It's a choice you and I make to love in spite of what we feel. It's not based on how we feel. It's the opposite to start off with. Feelings may come, and usually they do if you're doing it to honor Christ, because you feel a little bit of what God felt, what Jesus felt in loving people that were his enemy. You and me. It's the willing, joyful desire to put the welfare of others above our own. It's a choice that we're commanded to make, even on behalf of our enemies. And if you belong to Christ, the Holy Spirit who indwells you, the Word of God together empowers us to be able to do and experience something that nobody else really can. So let's see how Paul applies these truths about agape to the Corinthians. I'm going to try to emphasize how unique this is as we go through it. There's some real ironic parts as far as the way Paul communicates this. So in the first three verses of 1 Corinthians 13, Paul uses three conditional sentences to destroy, absolutely destroy, any notion that a Christian can live and worship without demonstrating agape love to his or her brothers and sisters in Christ. And remember, the context in which Paul writes is still the local body of Christ at Corinth. The love of Christ is to be demonstrated first and foremost to those you are united with in the body of Christ, in your local church. You know, this is, this is a, we always have this term family. Is it easier to show good and do something for people that you don't know and then kind of disappear? Of course it is. It's our families where it comes out, whether we really do or not. It's the same kind of idea. We are one body. And as you get to know each other, you find out not only good and attractive things and encouraged by faith in their walk in Christ, you also find out everything else, or at least most things. And that's when the tests come. We still encourage each other. We help each other walk faithfully. But we also find out that each and every one of us still sin against each other. And we learn how to mitigate that and love in spite of that. Now, this love then should also overflow to others outside, to your neighbors, so that the world says, 
they know we are Christians by what? By the way we love one another. And yes, it applies to marriage or any other relationship, but this is primarily directed to the church here. This is a very powerful paragraph that literally forces each one of us, if you listen, and it's kind of hard not to right now, if you're listening and you're hearing, it forces us to own up to our own selfish desires to seek attention and look good and be elevated above other people. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And if I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Notice something. Paul now writes in the first person. He's using himself as an example. He does something else here that we may not catch at first, but I'm going to try to make this clear. He expresses himself eloquently. This is beautifully poetic, which was greatly desired in the Greek culture that these Christians lived in. And this is one of their big problems, that they get so excited about hearing eloquent speech and arguments that they have lifted that up to be more important than actually what is communicated. Knowing that, Paul here uses hyperbolic or exaggerated language that immediately catches their attention. But with great irony and power, it also at the same time still destroys their pretensions. He does both things, and he's really good at this. So in verse 1, tongues is tackled first because it has become one of the most divisive issues in the church. And while the phrase tongues of men and of angels may be referring just to the gift, this expression is also broad enough to refer to speech in general. Does that make sense? In other words, it could be translated language, not tongue. The eloquence of men or of angels is especially the target here. Using this as an example, Paul's reference to tongues of angels does not prove that the gift of tongues entails speaking some kind of of heavenly language unknown by the speaker. That is not the point here at all, and yet that's usually how people try to look at it. Instead, it appears that Paul is saying something like this. Remember, he's using exaggerated, hyperbolic kind of speech. It's like he's saying, suppose that I, as the Lord's apostle, have the highest possible gift of tongues. That 
those that men use and those that even angels may use. How you Corinthians would admire and envy me and desire to have an equal gift to mine. See what he's saying? He's showing how their desire is not God-oriented, it's self-oriented and wanting to look good or have the best of whatever to those around them. In other words, Paul is not saying that tongue speakers are literally speaking the language of angels or what most people call today heavenly language. Instead, Paul is saying that no conceivable spoken language, whether human or angelic, eliminates the necessity of love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. That is the point. The issue here is that the Corinthians were used to being even mesmerized by eloquent speakers with all these flowery words. That's not what's important in Christian worship. A Christian's lack of being loving destroys whatever message there is. It reveals their selfish heart. It brings division to the church and dishonors the Lord. So the bottom line here is that speech in any language without love is nothing but what? Noise. This line of thinking continues in verse 2. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Now Paul switches gears just a little bit, and he refers to some of the other spiritual gifts that were referred to in chapter 12 as being more important to the body of Christ than tongues. Prophecy was ranked just below the office of apostle in that previous list, and so was regarded very highly. Generally, as we said back in that chapter, in 1 Corinthians, Paul uses it to refer to speech that reports something that God spontaneously brings to mind, but then is spoken in human words. It's also seen as being very similar to the gifts of preaching or teaching. So much so that many think that the prophetic gift today is preaching or teaching from God's completed word. Even the gift of prophecy, he's saying, if not exercised in love, also amounts to nothing. And then mysteries also, spirit-given insight into the things of Christ, if exercised without love, amounts to nothing. The same holds true even with knowledge. This was a sacred cow in the thinking of the Corinthians. Do you understand what I'm saying? They looked at the pursuit of knowledge as the thing that goes above everything else. And so does having great faith with love amounts to nothing. Is knowledge necessary? Yes. You've got to know God's word in order to know how to walk with him and what to believe. But it should it be the thing that can be communicated without love. 
Absolutely not. They've got to go together. But this great faith, that knocks some people for a loop. But that person has such great faith. And yet, if they don't demonstrate love, you have to ask the question. Now remember, again, the purpose of spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts, they're not for the benefit, the enjoyment, or the status of the person who's been given the gifts. What they're for is to build one another up in love and equipping us to serve in love. So if a gift is claimed to be completely private and nobody knows or thinks they have it except you, is it a spiritual gift? Not by the definition Paul's giving. It's something else. The presence of agape in the body of Christ is proof that the gifts of the Spirit are operating. Think about that for a second. If we are experiencing agape love in this body, it's proof that the gifts of Spirit are operating amongst us. I would argue forever that this kind of love has been and is being demonstrated by most of the people in this body, which is proof that spiritual gifts are operating, even if some may not even know what theirs is. In verse 3, Paul continues to push his examples really beyond what his readers are thinking. You notice how he's doing this? If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I don't gain a thing. Is that striking? It's meant to be. Paul here refers to his charitable willingness to part with his earthly possessions. The object of his charity would be the poor. But this is different than Jesus' command, say, to the rich young ruler to give all he had to the poor in one single action. The grammar shows that there's a difference. The rich young ruler was commanded to give all he had in one single action. Here, he means to dole out, literally, over a long period of time. Literally, this reads, if I dole out all my goods, and then we would add to the poor, which is implied, by doing this a little at a time, over a long period of time, Paul is implying that he could be doing this for other reasons than loving the needy recipients. What other reasons? Well, you could probably make a good list, but there's three that I think come to the forefront. Three possible reasons, other reasons, for giving charity that aren't really based in God's leading or motive, motivation <clears throat> would be to giving from a legalistic obligation. 
I'm giving because if I give, I'll get something back. That's one of the foundations of most TV heretics who call themselves believers. And they'll even send you something to prove it. And then you wait, 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 and then you get so discouraged and seared that you walk away. Or how about a desire for recognition and praise? It's always there. Or as a way, this is probably true of more of us than we care to imagine, as a way to soothe the guilty conscience. Part of your life you don't want others to know, you still feel so guilty about it, it's like a penance that you hope will get your merit back from the God. And that's why you're operating. But only love qualifies giving it, giving to be spiritual. It's doing it for anything else that is worthless. So as soon as we see the implication here, he reiterates that if charity is done with these other motivations, in other words, without this agape kind of love, that he would gain nothing at all. Folks, there's a reason why if we look at our world, there are more charitable organizations around than there ever have been in history. And just because they're charitable organizations does not mean that Christians are behind it. Christians are behind many. In fact, hospital systems, the list is really long. Many of those were started by believers who were trying to glorify God and help the people that they served. And so are many of the charitable contributions and institutions today. But no matter how sincere the people are, if they don't know the Lord, they're getting something back from it. And sometimes you can even see this in the commercials. It shows the person that's giving all fulfilled and feeling great about themselves and enjoying life like they never have before because they feel good in giving it. Well, of course. But what are they also doing? One of those three reasons. It feels good to get some praise and know you've used your resources. Maybe they felt guilty before and they want to help somebody out. Sincere feelings. But there's always a little in in it. And Paul's trying to make this very clear. If charity can be done with selfish motives and without agape love, which is really hard to swallow when you first start thinking about it, what about self-sacrifice? Surely the very nature or definition of self-sacrifice means pure motives, doesn't it? Well, Paul's saying, what? No? Not necessarily. Self-sacrifice does not automatically mean pure motives. 
There is some argument over the text here, but the point is still the same. Anything, even sacrificing yourself for something that may be good, can still be done without this agape kind of love. Verse 3 can be summed up this way. Throughout the history of the church, certain groups and movements have believed that self-denial, self-humiliation, and even self-affliction in themselves bring spiritual merit. They're doing something because they think they're going to get something back. Is that the definition of agape? No. You love and you don't expect anything back. Every marriage in America would be beautiful and happy if people could love each other like that. But you find out, first and foremost, when you get married, how selfish you really are. And it's always, I want something back, so I will do this or that. And that's what Paul is trying to show here. Many cults and pagan religions place great emphasis on the giving up of possessions, on sacrifices of various sorts. How do you think monasticism got going in the Middle Ages especially? Even for Christians, however, such things are worse than worthless without love. Without love, they are anything but selfless. The real focus of such practices is not God and not others, but self. And it usually comes in one of two big general categories, either in the form of legalistic fear of not doing those things because you've been told you have to, so you do them, but your heart's not in it. It's telling your kid to sit down. And they sit down and you look at them and you can tell. They're thinking, I'm still standing up. Even though I'm sitting down. So that's in the form of legalistic fear of not doing those things, or it is for the praise and imagined blessings for doing them, which is the motivation probably for most of what the world does, why they do it. Good is accomplished. Some of it's creative. It's incredibly impactful. But still... It's wanting something back, feeling good, getting praise from others. And the motive is self and is neither spiritual nor loving in this sense. Agape love has to be the soil from which our actions grow. Remember what John said? Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God, and the reason why we can love is because we know we didn't deserve it. And we want to give that kind of love to people and not expect anything back. But there's pure joy in being encouraged in that way.
Do you know why Marty and I and my family are so blessed to be here in Amarillo? Because we've known God's love to us through Christ, and we have known your love in this precious church. And we thank God for that. Soli Deo Gloria. And we want to continue to encourage one another in this regard. You know, you can go through almost anything, literally, if you have somebody, but especially if you have lots of somebodies who are walking with you through it, who you know love you the same way as this, as Christ loved us. Because your priorities have changed. That's a roundabout way of saying thanks beyond all thanks for the other night. Just to share that with you guys. Let's pray. Oh Lord, why do we constantly need this chapter to help us refocus? Especially when we get our feelings hurt and we become bitter and hold grudges. And Lord, you know that our hearts still go that direction so often and so quickly. We thank you that you freed us from being actually in chains in those regards. That because of what you did for us in sending your son that we could not do for ourselves, we not only have a story to tell about it, but we've experienced that personally. And if we truly know our hearts and we see what you're doing in us to change us to be more like him, we grow more and more aware of our sinful bent as we get older. And only your grace can keep us from despair and getting so discouraged. But if we get discouraged and it lasts forever and ever, it's because, oh Lord, you know this, that we think we ought to be able to do it on our own. So Lord, we thank you for your work in us. We pray that where we live, where we work, where we go, the people around us, that they could think that they know we are real Christians because of the love that we show to one another. And Lord, we know that you work mighty ways to bring people to the Lord. When we humble ourselves before you and are empowered by your indwelling spirit to live in this light, no greater joy in life. And we thank you that it's wrapped in Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Would you please stand for our benediction? Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, all generations, forever and ever. Amen.
you're dismissed.